This morning, our scripture reading comes from Revelation 22, 16 through 21. It's found on page 1042 in your pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take this one with you. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've come to the end of Revelation, to the end of the end. Um, This is our last message in the Revelation series. And then uh, starting next week and for the weeks of Advent, we're going to be actually diving in deeper into kind of the the topic of of our message today, which is heaven. So we're going to spend time during the Advent season asking the question, what are we waiting for and Advent is a season of waiting. It's a time uh, of waiting. That's what the season of Advent in the history of church has been, and both reflecting on uh, the waiting that Israel had and waiting for Jesus to come and to be born, as well as it's also a season of reflecting on and, and anticipating Jesus coming again. And so uh, when we ask that question, what are we waiting for? We're asking, what are we waiting for in the new heavens and new earth? So that's where we're going next. I'm really excited about that uh, series. In fact, I've um, just early this morning recorded one of those sermons for the online service uh, in, in the Heaven series, so I'm excited to be moving there. And that's what we're going to see this morning uh, a little bit here at the end of the book of Revelation as well. So uh, as we move into that, let's take a moment now and pray, and then we'll open up to Revelation chapter 21 and 22 together. So, Eternal Father, whose Son, Jesus Christ, ascended to the throne of heaven, that he might rule over all things as Lord and King, Keep the church in the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. And being the whole created order, and bring the whole created order to worship at his feet, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, I wonder, and I've asked you, a number of you this this morning already, what are you doing for Thanksgiving this year? And I know, talking to many of you, that uh, the reality of of the COVID uh, virus spread in our country has all altered those plans for many of you. Some of you are, were planning on traveling, uh, and now you're staying home. Others of you were uh, looking forward to having people come to visit you or spend time in your home, and, and maybe they're, uh, they're not coming or fewer folks are coming uh, than you had planned. And, uh, you know, this is, maybe some of you are driving instead of flying, uh, those kinds of things. Others of you, uh, probably not, I said this in the online service, if you're here, this is probably not true of you, I said in the online service, maybe some of you have been self-isolating for a couple weeks now, so you can be safe to travel. Uh, But if you're here this morning, that's probably not the case for you. Um, But 
this reality that we're in has shaped all of our lives and altered our plans and altered what, what we were hoping for in this season. And, and maybe at this moment, you're just frustrated and tired with all of this, the, the COVID, the politics, all of it. And, and maybe you just want to get back to normal routines and rhythms. I was talking to someone here in the room this morning, they're like, it just seems like COVID's messed up every holiday this year. And I get that. And that sense of, of whether you're going home for the holidays or not, I think many of us would agree that just 2020 as a year has just not felt like home. And even if we are going to, to be literally in our homes, maybe longing to leave our homes more often uh, this year than, than, we, uh, than we have been able to, I think we just, we have a sense that this world, this kind of life where we're wearing masks all the time and kids are home from school and this is, this is not home. This doesn't feel like home. That even in the, the wealthiest, most technologically advanced country in the world, we, we've been crippled by a virus, by fears, by anger, by division, by anxiety. And I think we long for something better, something more. We, we feel it deep down in our bones this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And our feelings of sadness and anger, anxiety, disgust, they all are telling us the truth about our needs and about our longings. This is really key as we think about our emotions, our feelings. Our emotions don't lie. They might not be uh, tuned into reality, but they themselves don't lie. They are giving us a sense of pointing us to a need. When we're angry, when we're sad, when we're lonely, when we're experiencing disgust, we have to listen to those emotions because they are pointing us to something that we need. And typically a need for rescue, a longing for restoration, a longing for things to be made right. So don't ignore those feelings. Feel them. Not to wallow in them, but to let them point you to where your place of need is. Let them move you to ask, what am I longing for? When I, when I feel that disgust, when I feel that anger, when I feel that anxiety, that worry, that frustration, what, what is that emotion pointing to that, that I need? And where the book of Revelation ends is pointing to our longings and our hopes and, our, and all being fulfilled, finally being satisfied, I think we need that message, not only because, well, 2020 has been something of a year that none of us would have expected, but also at one level, because Revelation has been a hard book. You know, we've been journeying through uh, Revelation these last, uh, I don't know, 10 weeks or so, and, and this has been a tough book to go through at one level. It's not an easy book to read. It's a different kind of literature than we're used to reading, not only because it's ancient uh, literature from 2,000 years ago, but, you know, it's easy enough to pick up the Gospels and kind of read through. They have a story sense to them. But Revelation, it's just a tough genre of literature to read and make sense of. Uh, but not only is it just a difficult book to, to read and understand, once you do understand it, sort of the complexities, they only get 
get worse from there in the sense of it's been a challenging book when you understand what it means. It pushes us, right? The Revelation has pushed us and challenged us on every page, um, whether it's been in our finances or in how we think about politics or our understanding of the economy. Uh, the, the whole goal of this kind of literature is to reveal our, our idols and, and call us to costly obedience and faithfulness, endurance, and uh, as we saw last week, even this, this message for the end of the book of the reality of final judgment that's coming. So Revelation, while it has been good, has not been an easy book to study. And yet we can miss the big picture of where the book ends if we get bogged down in those places. And indeed where the entire Bible itself ends, Revelation speaks to what we long for most. And that's what we see in the final two chapters of the book. And I think here we, we see it pointing to at least sort of three longings that are fulfilled. Three longings that are fulfilled. And the first longing is a longing for healing. A longing for healing. And by healing, I don't just mean healing from, from COVID-19 or healing from political and racial and ethnic division, though it's not less than that. But I mean comprehensive healing of all that is broken, of all that is not right in our world. And that's what Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 gives us a picture of when it declares that there is a new heavens and a new earth coming and that there will no longer be any sea. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And the sea was no more. Maybe you've wondered this. Maybe you have never read this verse before. Maybe if you have read this verse before, maybe you wonder, why no more sea? Why in the new creation reality does it say no more sea? I mean, how are no more beach vacations a sign of a healed creation, right? What's going on there? Well, this is where, we, again, we have to understand, as we have all throughout the book of Revelation, how uh, different images are being used as symbols to communicate to us. And in the story of the Bible and in the ancient Near East, the sea, the oceans, kind of these vast, untamed oceans, they are a sign of what is untamed, what is chaotic, where it's where, you know, again, if you went back to verse, uh, chapter 13 in Revelation, it's where the beast comes out of the sea. The sea is the place where monsters live, where chaos reigns. The sea was the home of the chaos monster, the source of disaster, unordered creation. So even back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, you have uh, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then God begins to speak and act, and things that have been unordered now become ordered and become functional, as working as they're supposed to. I love the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, which is a great resource um, explains the, the sea imagery like this. It says, as the home of the chaos monster who can be roused, the sea symbolizes the threat of reemergence of chaos. In fact, the evil world powers and the Antichrist of the last day which oppose God and his people are symbolized as beasts rising from the sea. So when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, at last, there will no longer be this place of evil, chaos, disorder, where evil can rise out and begin to wreak havoc. That place will not exist anymore. So does that mean that there will be no large bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, 
I don't think so. I think there's still going to be large bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, you could, Michigan is a lake, Michigan's a lake, right? But it's still pretty big. So I think we're still going to have large bodies of water in the new heavens and new earth. I mean, again, Revelation chapter 22, you have rivers flowing. Rivers have to flow somewhere into larger bodies of water. I mean, again, we're, we're stretching at the bounds of what we can understand here. But I, I just don't think God is going to do away with, with dolphins and dugongs and whales and walruses and seals and seahorses. I think there will be even, there will be large, even sort of oceanic-sized bodies of waters in new creation. So Revelation 21.1 doesn't mean no more water. It just means no more drowning, no more danger, no more demons, no more devil. I remember listening to John Piper speak on, it was, Revelation, or it was Romans chapter 8, I think, and he was talking about the snow sea language, and he said, you know, once you get the Leviathan out of there, no one's going to drown, surf, you know, I mean, like, the ocean, the sea can be a great place. So what is beautiful about Revelation is that God deals also with this healing in a very personal way. So there's this kind of cosmic promise that there's going to be no more sea, there's going to be no more place of, of chaos and death, that's going to be gone. But it, not just at a cosmic level is God going to deal with hurt and pain, he's also going to deal with it in an extremely personal way. Look at 21 verse 4. It says this, He will wipe away every tear, from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So you have a, a cosmic removal of the sea, this place of chaos. But you also have Jesus, who's promised to wipe away every tear from your eye. As I look around this room, I know there's been a lot of tears shed in this room. A lot of tears. Over marriages and children. Longing for children. Deaths of loved ones. Court cases. Businesses that have, have failed. Promises that have been broken. Lives that have just not gone like you wanted them to go. Jesus says he's going to wipe away those tears one day. Every single one. No matter how tough you may look on the outside, everyone in this world has been deeply hurt and wounded to, to live in a creation that is subject to bondage and decay means that you will have experiences that wound and hurt. People let you down. People who reject you. Bodies that betray you. Right? Some of you have lived in physical pain and, and emotional pain, which is physical pain, right? Like we can't experience emotions outside of our bodies. Right? With physical pain, emotional pain every single day. But Jesus says that one day that is going to end. Those pains, those losses, those, those sorrows, those anxieties, that depression that just will not go away, Jesus says there is an expiration date on those things. And the God who cried human tears, who experienced an agonizing physical death 
and emotional pain will take those things away. He will wipe away the tears. Continues in verse 5 and 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of the life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And we, we've seen this throughout the book, that the one who conquers isn't always the one who is strong. The one who always has it together. If you trace the theme of how that language of victorious or conquer is used in the book, it's not of the people who are strong, who have it all together. No, in Revelation, the one who conquers is the one who keeps throwing themselves again and again on the love and the mercy and the promise of Jesus again and again and again. And and what happens when they can't, when they don't have the strength to keep doing that? They cling to him and trust even when they can't hold on to him that Jesus is holding on to them. Friends, if you have clung to Jesus, if you said, my only hope and in life and in death is Jesus, then you know what? He calls you his child. You are his adopted son, his adopted daughter, and your inheritance is so secure and it can't be undone. No matter what happens, keep clinging to him. He will bring the healing we long for. You will inherit a new heavens and a new earth, a place without tears, without mourning, without sadness anymore. But here's the thing. If all we long for is healing, if that's all that we long for, and it is a key longing and we need to tap into it, we need to feel it, but if all we long for is healing, we won't get it. Why is that? Because healing can't happen without something else that we also long for, and that's justice. Uh, Because our hearts don't just long for healing, they also long for justice, for things to be made right, for for wrong to be dealt with, not just ignored, not just papered over, not just said, well, well, that's all in the past now, so, so let's just forget about that and pretend like it never happened. Those approaches do not satisfy They do not satisfy. And again, in the midst of all that was going on in 2020, one of the things we heard most loudly for was cries in our country for for justice to be done. There's a deep sense that wrong has been done and that it must be righted. And the message from many of the protests is that, you know, we've got to tear this current system down and, and build something different and something new. And those longings and sentiments are never going to go away because people long for a justice that only the kingdom of God can provide. Nations have oppressed nations. Peoples have oppressed peoples. Wars are fought. Blood is shed. But as we saw last week, God will finally deal with injustice. He's not just going to ignore it forever. But he does it by his victory on the cross and by the handing over of evil to the lake of fire for destruction and containment forever. God is just. 
And he cares so much about justice and righteousness that he gave his life to make it right. And then you see the result of him bringing justice to the world and to all the nations in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. It says, in the middle of the street, this is now picturing the new Jerusalem, in the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river is the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And listen to this, and the leaves of the trees were for the, the tree were for the healing of the nations. So you have kind of this cosmic healing, no more sea. You have this individual healing of, of tears being wiped away. And then also, th- this, when things are set back to right, when justice is done, there's a healing of the nations. The nations are healed and restored. No more war, no more one culture or group or people demeaning or, or dominating others. No more injustice. No more innocents wrongly imprisoned. No more guilty walking free. Only healing one on the tree of the cross so that all who come to Jesus might have access to the healing of the tree of life. And I think this is one area where the church has an incredible opportunity to meet the broader culture and say, yes, of course there is injustice in the world. We can point back to Genesis 3, which is the the beginning of it all. But we have a hope for healing that doesn't lead to more injustice and opposition. That is based on a whole reframing of what power is and how it's supposed to function. As an opportunity for serving one another. Not just wrestling to see who has the most of it. You see, the Bible points to justice, but it's a different sort of justice than is offered by postmodern critical theory. For example, Tim Keller, in his outstanding series of articles on, on race and justice that he put out this summer, if you, they're long, you know, each one is probably 7,000 words, but they're well worth reading. He makes this outstanding point. He says, the postmodern view sees all injustice as happening on a human level, and so demonizes human beings rather than recognizing the evil forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil at work through all human life, including your own. Adherents of the view also end up being utopian. They see themselves as saviors rather than recognizing the only true divine savior will be able to finally bring in justice. And I love this, this reminder. When dealing with injustice, we do confront human sin. We have to. But, in addition, we wrestle not merely with flesh and blood. There is a beast. There is an enemy, an accuser. So Christians actually say the problem of injustice is worse than you think. Right? A, a broader secular culture say it, it's, it's primarily this, this, and this. But it, no, actually, it's, it's even worse than that. <laughs> Because it's not just on the visible, material, systematic structure that we can see. If there's an evil systematic structure that we can't see in the spiritual realm that is bringing these things about, the, the, the supernatural forces of evil at work, the problem's actually worse than you think it is. But also the solution is better than you think it is because God himself has defeated those powers, forgiven our sin, and our complicity with those forces and is working by his spirit now through the church and will one day bring to completion the work of healing of the nations and justice. In the new heaven and the new earth, our longing for justice will be fully satisfied. All wrongs will be redressed. All truth will be made known. But again, let me say this. If all you want is healing, And if all you want is justice, 
If, if, if that's where your longing stops, is just in healing and just in injustice and in, in longing for justice to come, then you won't get them. Because healing and justice are only possible. They're only possible with someone. You see, our deepest longings for home is for a place and for a person. For a place and a person. Not just a place with with no more tears. Not just a place with with no more injustice. If we had those, it still wouldn't be enough because we need a relationship with a person. Home is a someone. The place we long for, a place of healing and justice, can only be that place because it is the dwelling place of someone. Uh, Christian uh, author and psychologist Kurt Thompson points out that we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. We are all born looking for someone looking for us. From the moment that a baby is born, an infant is born, they first, they, they, their eyes, they lock onto human faces. They immediately start looking for faces. And they're longing for a face to look back at them. One of the most devastating things that can happen to any person, but especially a young child, is to never be looked at, to be ignored. We are born looking for someone, looking for us. And the central problem in the world and with humanity, according to the biblical story, is that we have been cut off from the one who can give us what we most desperately need. Adam and Eve rejected God in the Garden of Eden. He went looking for them. Right? They were rejected by God. They rejected God. They said, we, don't, we would rather be our own masters to decide right and wrong for ourselves. We're going to eat this fruit of the tree. Even though they said not to do that, they look away from God, but he comes looking for them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, the question God asks, where are you? Where are you? Again, God is not curious about their physical location. He knows that. But he wants to know where he's giving them an opportunity. Come back, look back to me, turn back to my face. They're hiding from him. They don't want him to look for them anymore. They don't want to see his gaze, right? They're experiencing that sense of shame. And when we feel shame, we look away, we look down, we can't make eye contact anymore. We are all hiding. We are all cut off. But it will not always be that way. Because listen again to how this passage began. Back in 21, we read verses 1 and 2. This is verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Heaven is God with you. God with us. That that is the deepest longing of our hearts, whether we understand it or not. And God is always asking the question, where are you? I want to be with you. To be with God in his place, with his people forever. That's what heaven is. And heaven without Jesus, heaven without the presence of God dwelling with us, that's not heaven. That is actually the definition of hell. If we only long for healing and justice, but not for someone, we will miss out on both healing and justice. 
because what comes next in the very first, uh, the next verse here, verse 4 in chapter 21, we read it, um, we've read it before in, in, in the series, it says this, he will wipe, and we read it earlier, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain, or any more, for the former things have passed away. But what, this is so key. Jesus is the one wiping away every tear because he is there with us to do it. So if we want healing, if we want every tear wiped away, we have to want Jesus there with us to do it, to be the one who's providing that healing. Yet I so often find myself imagining the good life of heaven, but without the central person of Jesus being a part of what I long for. It's sort of if I could just have a, a, a long, everlasting vacation in a national park, that I would be happy. But if Jesus is not there, there's no tears that are going to get wiped away. There's no justice that's going to be righted. He's the one doing it. Trying to satisfy our deepest longings with someone who, I should say, trying to satisfy our deepest longings without someone without the someone who's both the source and the fulfillment of those longings is like saying, you know, I would really love to get married. I just don't want a spouse. You know, I want all the goodness of marriage. I just don't want the burden of having a spouse. Right? You just, you, you, you can't, that's what marriage is, is having a spouse. You can't long for marriage and not say, but I don't want a spouse. And yet so often I think that's what we do with heaven. Say, so I long for heaven, but you know, if Jesus is there, that's great. I, I'm happy to go and visit him every once in a while. But no, it's like he is heaven. That is the whole point. And few people have put this more powerfully than Pastor John Piper in writing about his book called God is the Gospel. He says this, the gospel of Jesus and his many precious blessings are not ultimately what makes the good news good, but means of seeing and savoring the Savior himself. Forgiveness is good because it opens the way to enjoy God himself. Justification is good because it wins access to the presence and pleasure of God. Eternal life is good because it becomes the everlasting enjoyment of Jesus. Healing and justice and the good life of no more tears and death are only possible with someone. And the fundamental prayer of the Christian is, come Lord Jesus. Not just because he will make all things new, not just because we will be with him in the flesh, the one looking for us. But Revelation 21 and 2 does not end with sort of a pie in the sky, unlimited national park vacations. It ends with us being found fully and finally and forever being found and known by the one who is the one who made us and gave us even the longings that we have. Now, don't misunderstand when I talk about the centrality of God's presence in heaven, because I think we can also, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this in this series coming on heaven, I think sometimes if we get, so, so God is what I'm supposed to long for in heaven, so does that mean that heaven is going to kind of be this disembodied, immaterial church service where we just sort of sit around a glowing presence of God all day, and somehow that will satisfy me? Too often it leads us to a distorted view of a disembodied heaven where we just float on the clouds and an endless church service. But friends, that is not the picture that we get in Revelation or in any other parts of the Bible that speak about what is coming. 
God made the material world in which we live. He made your body, and he actually called it good. And yes, it's now subject to death and decay, but he is going to remake it. A new heavens, a new earth. Not a non-heaven and a non-earth. A new heaven and a new earth. Physical, tangible, real bodies, mountains, trees, friends, families, homes, cities. And again, we're going to spend a lot of time on that in the next five weeks. What is this new heavens and new earth that we're longing for, that we're waiting for? Because we are still waiting. Waiting for the promise that Jesus gave through John in this book. And you know, as we close the book of Revelation, I was struck by this too, that John, the Apostle John, he was left waiting too. And I kind of tried to put myself in the shoes of John, who, who had this vision, who wrote it down for us, and what that must have been like, right? Because think about his life. John was this, he was a fisherman. And he was working in the family business with his dad and his brother. And then one day, this kind of unknown rabbi guy named Jesus from the sort of no-name village of Nazareth sees him and his brother, and they're fishing, and they're with their dad, and they're mending the nets. And Jesus calls to him and says, follow me. And, and John's whole life changes. He follows Jesus. He, he watches Jesus heal people. He watches Jesus feed thousands. He sees Jesus raise, raise people from the dead. He sees Jesus calm the seas, right? All of these miracles of Jesus are pointing forward to the new creation that's coming. Jesus' miracles of healing, all of it, they are bits of that new creation come, come from the future into the present little foretaste of what's coming. And he mourns, and is, as he sees then Jesus crucified on the cross, he's crushed by grief. Then, then two days later, he hears from Mary that the tomb is empty, and he races to see for himself, and that the tomb is empty, and then Jesus appears to them and spends time with them over this 40-day period of time, and then Jesus ascends into heaven. And then John is there in Jerusalem on, on Pentecost Sunday and the Spirit descends and John watches the church begin to spread across the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. And he's waiting, waiting for Jesus to return to make all things new. But now John is old. His body aches. He's been exiled to Patmos for his faithfulness to Jesus. And one day he has this vision the vision of revelation of the risen Jesus, a promise of what is coming soon and the most vivid and accurate detailed picture of the new heavens and new earth that anybody has ever received. John has that and he's not just reading about it like we are. He is there experiencing it. And then he comes out of the vision and he's still there on Patmos, still there in exile, still old, still aching, still waiting. So how do we wait well as John waited? How do we wait well for home? Just, just three, three really quick things. These are not, I'm going to unpack these. I'm just going to give you three quick things here. You see in the final verses of Revelation, one, we wait well by worshiping the true God. So we worship God. We want to wait well you got to recognize that your heart is tuned toward worshiping all kinds of lesser things. So if you want to wait well, worship God. 
Keep tuning your heart to him. Keep longing for him. Keep asking him to show you where you're trusting things that, that won't satisfy. Second, obey Jesus. Jesus says that if you want to find the good life that you long for, it's actually found in, in obeying me and taking me at my word and doing what I've said, not on your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And finally, pray with the Spirit. So we worship God, we obey Jesus, and we pray with the Spirit. Because that's how the book ends. It's what Annalyn read for us a moment ago. We pray with the Spirit who says, Come, Lord Jesus. Why? Because our deepest longing is for someone. The book doesn't end with, Come, new heavens and new earth. It says, Come, Lord Jesus. Because when He comes, the new heavens and the new earth are coming with Him. The someone of heaven came to earth to give his life for you. His body was broken so ours and the whole world could be healed. He was the innocent one who suffered injustice. If anyone knows what it is to suffer injustice, it's Jesus. He was the innocent one who suffered injustice as well as the judgment of all injustice in the world so that he could bring justice to and for all. He gave up his life so that you could be raised from the dead and live forever with him. And in his presence, we seek and cling to the practice of communion as a little foretaste of home.